0: Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning.
1: Last summer, I had the good fortune of being able to catch a a screening of the documentary Design Canada before its official release. And we mentioned back then that when it finally was released, that we would let you all know. And that time has come. The film was supposed to be released this past autumn, but for whatever reason, there were, were some delays uh, as happens with projects, and it is now available for streaming on iTunes and Vimeo.
0: And there's also another little bit of detail in there. You've uh, got a small credit in this film now, don't you?
1: Yeah, I, I do now. Uh, so back in episode 21, which was the our follow-up episode to the episode in which we dis- discussed Design Canada, I had clarified that I was to the best of my knowledge, in no way related to Jessica Edwards, who was a producer on Design Canada, because there were a few people who had asked me about that. Uh, And I had also mentioned at the time that I had no ties to the film. So a few little things have have changed since then. Uh, The version of the documentary that I had caught in the summer was still a work in progress. And there were a couple of scenes in the film where I, I just noticed some distracting... Content on the screen in the shots while the designer was speaking and I reached out to Greg Jarrell, who's the director on the film, and uh, offered to do some rotoscopings. I felt that the film would be better served by not having those those visual distractions, so you could actually focus in wholly on on what the the designer was speaking about, and uh, he was very happy to have the help so i busted out some skills and uh, that I I had not used in a few years, dust them off, and uh, essentially uh, photoshopped in video form. Uh, So rotoscoping is basically taking content in a shot and and painting over it or painting it out of a a shot so that it looks like it was never there in the first place. Uh, So I I do indeed have a a credit in the film. This was... uh, quite exhilarating to see that roll by when I, I got to see the, the final release version. I really do admire what they've done here with this film in the way that they've captured so much of the the essence of Canada and its place on the the design scene on, on the world stage.
0: Well, I haven't had a chance to take a look at this yet because this has only just been released and I was not a Kickstarter backer, so I did not get a an early version of this. But uh, now that it's out, I'm going to Download a copy of it and uh, have a watch because uh, you and Tamara have both seen it already, and and I've heard from various people about how good it was. So I am uh, I am looking forward to being able to get a copy of this and watching it.
1: Well, I hope it stirs up a similar level of nostalgia for you that it did for me.
0: <laughs> well, I am sure it will. Having grown up here in Canada in the seventies and eighties, it's I am sure that'll be plenty in there for me. We mentioned during our SHH show last episode that Omega had been trying to sort of rain on the SIHH parade a little bit by releasing some information just prior to the show. And then immediately following SIHH, they decided to drop some more uh, releases on the world. And uh, again, they seem to be uh, going back to some of their old material and reviving it. What have they released now, just post SIHH?
1: Yeah, so they certainly seem to be doubling down on this strategy of obfuscating the signal coming out of SIHH and announcing but a whole bunch of releases, both before and after. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out next year when SIHH and, and Basil World are neck and neck with one another. And I think this is kind of their final chance to, to be playing these games. So they're really digging into their, their vaults and, and their history and, and re releasing some old calibers. So in addition to re-releasing the Caliber 321 this year, which we touched on last episode, they are also releasing a 19-lean pocket watch movement that they had first released 125 years ago. And this particular movement is significant because it is the reason that Omega is Omega today. Mm-hmm. It was prior to the release of this movement, that the company was known as louis frere or La Genéral Watch Co. And this particular caliber was so successful that uh, they changed the entire course of history for the the company. In that uh, they they came to name the company after the the movement. Because this movement was nicknamed the Omega, and it is a 19 lean pocket watch movement. Uh, so they're going to be re-releasing 19. Hunter-style cased pocket watches containing this movement, all being made in their their workshops. Uh, so this is going to be a, a very limited edition release. And then to complement that, they are also releasing a brand new, manually wound Omega Deville Tresor, 125th Anniversary Edition, with a red dial and a red strap. To the best of my knowledge, is the, the first time that they have had a uh, a manually wound coaxial caliber. Uh, so they're just really digging into their old school roots this year uh, because the 321 is also a manually wound caliber. And then, of course, this pocket watch movement is a manually wound caliber as well. So these are the, the types of pieces that are going to appeal to aficionados far more than the the general populace.
0: Now, on top of digging into the old movements like that and some of their their older watches. Uh, they've also just announced a new Seamaster as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Seamaster 300 in black ceramic and titanium. Uh, it's a quite quite a handsome piece. I think they did an admirable job on this one.
0: Yeah, it is pretty striking. It's uh, it's very, very bold. And if you're interested in a, a bold watch like that, it's uh, it's going to be appealing. I don't know how useful it is as a dive watch. It'd be uh, interesting to hear from actual divers to find out how uh, how appealing it would be as a dive watch uh, it's i know that uh, most true dive watches tend to be very very bright in color um but it's uh certainly a a bold watch if you're looking for something to wear on the wrist that uh is sporty and makes a statement
1: well it is well loomed so at least yeah you've got the loom going for you it just be a very <laughs> stark contrast as you get deeper and, and deeper under the ocean Now for people who might not be familiar with what a a 19 lean size pocket watch caliber would be like size-wise, how would you compare that to something like the 6497 you've been working with?
0: Well, it's, it's ginormous compared to a 6497 to be honest. The 6497 is 37 millimeters in diameter and the Omega is just shy of 43 millimeters in diameter. So... By comparison, um, my wristwatch that I'm working on right now, the entire case is only 40 th- 42 millimeters in diameter. So the movement alone in this case is actually larger than my current watch that I'm working on. So this is a massive watch, and uh, obviously it would just be far too ridiculous to put on a wrist, although I suspect there are people out there who would try. But it's uh, it should be a striking pocket watch. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing some of the final photos of this and uh, see what it looks like. Mm
1: -hmm. In a a similar vein, I had a chance to handle a a re-released pocket watch from Longines about 10 years ago. So Longines is uh, a sister brand to Omega. They're both owned by the Swatch Group. And uh, it was was very well done, quite a a striking piece Mm. and uh, something I I certainly wouldn't mind toting around myself. I I am known to carry a pocket watch from time to time. And uh, I'm, I, too, am interested to see what uh, exactly this looks like once it's all said and done. Uh, but it's unlikely that uh, either of us will likely ever handle one in the metal, given that there are only 19 pieces being released worldwide.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly don't expect to run into one of these in the wild, but it'll be interesting to see what they do. The, the, uh, something the size of a pocket watch gives some interesting real estate for people to work on and of course that's one of the reasons why the 6497 is so popular for watchmaking schools the pieces are are obviously larger and then on top of that you've got a fair bit of real estate to experiment with and and add some uh, some additional work in so curious to see what they do with it and and see how it looks so how's your
1: year of organization going
0: Well, it's still early in the year, but things are uh, starting to take shape in the shop. I've been going through and doing a bit of a a culling in the shop and trying to organize things. There are a few projects now that are underway that will help with the organization. The first is that I'm in the middle of packing up a lot of the things that I don't use on a regular basis. And I think I'm actually going to move them to a storage locker for the short term. One of the things I've been meaning to do for a couple of years, and a friend of mine actually helped me by starting it, and I've just never gotten around to finishing it, is building a proper shed beside the house so that I can store things in there that I don't actually need regularly. For various reasons, I've never gotten around to finishing it. It was going to happen this year in November, and then our nasty winter hit much earlier than expected, so I didn't get around to doing the shed. Uh, so in the meantime, as a stopgap, I've decided that I'm going to rent a storage locker to be able to get some of the junk out of the shop that's that's sort of collecting dust and taking up space that I could be using for, for other things. And then on top of that, I've also been working on a design for some shelving units. I've been meaning to learn how to weld, and this shelving unit system is going to give me a, a chance to practice some of my welding skills. In fact, I'm going to rope rich into doing a little bit of the welding as well since he's been trying to to learn how to weld as well and we're going to uh to build up some some shelving units that we can put up on the wall and maybe get a little bit of uh, floor space back for machines which is something that i'm desperately in need of if you uh go into my instagram feed from a little while ago as i mentioned during our themes show the uh the shop is a complete disaster right now and i'm hoping to actually claw back some of that floor space and be able to turn it into a little bit uh, more efficient of a workspace to uh, to work in so yeah two two things already even though it's uh, early in the year my uh, my themes are are pushing along and and hopefully i can get this done in the next uh, two or three weeks and have a little bit more space so that i can start uh, using my machines a little more efficiently
1: well, with welding involved, it sounds like these shelves are going to be significantly heavier duty than, say, a VITSO 606 system.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, they're definitely going to be a little bit heavier duty. Uh, right now, I've got some uh, Rubbermaid plastic shelving units in there, and they're buckling under the load of what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to do with them. Uh, they were, again, only ever supposed to be temporary, and they have turned into a multi-year storage solution. Use this as a warning, dear listener. Don't uh, put something temporary in if you uh, if you want it to. Uh, if you want to put something in, do do it right the first time, because the chances are your temporary system is probably going to be around much longer than you realize. So these are going to be made out of uh, one inch square tubing with eighth inch wall thickness, and that's a pretty common tubing size that can be found around here. So I'll be buying a, a bunch of that and um, hopefully getting that in the next uh, the next few weeks. And then I can start working on, on welding. Unfortunately, in the meantime, I, as I said, I need to get things out of the shop because I don't actually have enough floor space right now to be able to work on the shelving units. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem right now, whereas I need to make some space in the shop to be able to actually get the, the shelving built. And then up on the walls, and then I can start to, uh, to take advantage of it a little bit better.
1: So do you already have a, a welder on hand, or are you going to be picking one up for this?
0: Uh, right now, I'm borrowing Rich's TIG welder, and it's not exactly the perfect machine for doing this kind of work. Uh, TIG welders are great for doing precision work, and uh, they're very, very flexible and versatile. They're also a little more difficult to use. I'm, I'm certainly not a talented TIG welder by any stretch of the imagination. I am going to be doing some work with the TIG welder, mostly because that's what I happen to have on hand right now. I have a really low-quality MIG welder sitting around, which if I'm lucky, I might be able to convince to work in this case. But I'm also in the process of looking for a MIG welder for the shop, just so that I can get this done fast. The you know the TIG welder, people that I know who do really, really nice TIG welding work, just do absolutely gorgeous stuff. It is incredibly versatile and if you know what you're doing it's um it's not fast but it's it's nowhere near as slow as I am unfortunately i am really bad at tig welding so i spend half of my time taking the tungsten electrode out of the tig gun and regrinding it because i've managed to dip it into the puddle and ruined the tip on it so it's uh it's not the fastest way of welding for me i've been meaning to get a mig welder for many years now a good one and so i think this may end up being the catalyst for actually getting one and uh, getting it into the shop because there are a number of projects where having a a mig welder would be incredibly useful
1: i've used the the tungsten from a welder before to make a a prototype watch part a couple years back and uh, it was quite a a fun challenge to to machine that it was all done manually not on a, a cnc machine um, so do you have any tips for, for re-grinding re- the tungsten tips?
0: Well, grinding tungsten is pretty easy, actually. It's, um, you use a bench grinder and you stick the tungsten electrode in a drill and you run the drill fast and you run the the grinder and you just hold it at an angle and you're putting a, and you know, you're putting a cone basically on the, on the tip of the tungsten electrode. Uh, so doing that's relatively quick. Uh, but the problem that you run into, of course, is that in my case, every every couple of inches, I'm of welding, I'm dipping that, link, you know, or destroying that link that uh, electrode. So uh, I have a a set of them on hand that I grind up, and then I I go at it and do some welding, and then grind them, and then weld, and then grind them and weld. Uh, but in this case, I'm going to be doing many feet of welding. Uh, you know, linear welds. So if I have to regrind every couple of inches, it's going to take me forever to actually uh, get this thing welded up. So I suspect what I'll do is I will tack weld everything together using the uh, TIG welder and then use the MIG welder to go along and do all of the long welding setups.
1: Interesting. I've never heard of anyone using both before. Have, have you done that before?
0: Yeah, it's certainly possible. Again, it's, um, you know, I'll probably use the, the TIG welder to sort of tack things up just because that's what I happen to have on hand right now. And then depending on what happens with the, you know, with getting the MIG welder, I'll either start working on the longer welds with the TIG or I'll, uh, you know, be able to get the shelving at least up and out of the way so that I can start working on the next one and then come back afterwards and MIG weld it, because all the tack welding should keep it in place without any structure, or without any weight on the structure. Uh, It'll hold itself together as it is, Uh, so that'll at least get me you know, sort of creating the shell of what I'm trying to make, and then I can come back after and MIG weld the whole thing up and get it all going.
1: So let me get this straight. You are not very good at TIG welding. Rich wants to learn (laughs) how to TIG weld. Rich owns a TIG welder which he is lending to you and you are going to teach Rich to TIG weld and then you intend to use these shelves to hold heavy objects.
0: I have no intention of teaching Rich to TIG weld at this point. As bad a TIG welder as he is, I am far worse right now. I don't think he would mind me saying that he's not a great welder. Um, And so uh, I, I suspect if I manage to do any serious, you know, any any significant amount of this with the tig welder I will be much better than I am now uh but I certainly don't uh, don't intend to do very much of it so if I can at all help it but yes yeah, so I'm I'm going to see about roping him into coming up here and uh working on that I know he's been busy with some secret projects lately that are uh sort of of a time sensitive nature so he's trying to get that done once he's finished with those I'm going to be able to I think rope him into doing a little bit of uh a little bit of welding but I expect that uh, before that, I need to make sure that there's enough space to be able to actually work on this project, because as it is right now, there is certainly not enough room for me to be able to actually do the, um, you know, sort of the framing, if you will, of these shelves.
1: I wish you luck. It sounds like you're off to a decent
0: start. Well, it's it's something. As I said, my, my TIG welding is not going to win any awards, and it might... Uh, might make a, a real welder actually cringe and have a heart attack. It's, uh, it's they're pretty horrible right now. Now, if you do want to see someone who is a gifted TIG welder, uh, I recommend checking out Julie Lake's profile on Instagram. She's lake underscore object, and she's using TIG welding with very fine stainless steel wires and is creating these incredibly impressive uh, art pieces out of it. Most of it's jewelry. Things to be worn, and a lot of it has great volume and um, a lot of really interesting movement with it. But she's a she's a gifted welder. If you ever want to see somebody doing uh, good TIG welding, I highly recommend you check out her account because she actually has uh, has some real skill as a welder, unlike me.
1: Interesting. So I'll have to check out Julie's work. I will admit that welding is not something that I have ever tried, so I, I can't say that I would be any good whatsoever. But it is something that uh, I do very much admire, as I have certainly seen very skilled work and, and very poor work done on things. My uh, uncles ran a, a generator manufacturing operation for a number of years, and I would get to hang out in the shops there and, and see all this sort of work going on. It was always neat to, to watch the welders at work from a distance. Uh, of course, although the the odd time one of my uncles would toss a visor on me and some heavy aprons and and bring me in a little closer to see what was actually going on. But uh, it's not something I've ever tried my hand at.
0: It's something that that really benefits, well, at least in the case of TIG welding, really benefits from uh, a lot of good practice. Uh, MIG welding is one of those things that I think Adam Savage once referred to it as basically a hot glue gun for steel. And you with very minimal effort, you can make a MIG welder do something useful. Um, it's it's a a relatively straightforward process. TIG welding is certainly something that benefits a lot more from actual skill. Uh, there's sort of a, a steep learning curve initially, and once you've done your sort of your first couple hundred hours of TIG welding, uh, you'll have a lot of really bad looking welds, and then. You can start to do interesting things with a TIG welder after you've been after you've had a chance to do a, you know, a, as I said, a, some serious practice with it. Um, but it it certainly benefits from from that. It's not the you know it's not for the faint of heart initially. If you're if you get frustrated very quickly when you're when you're learning a new skill, TIG welding is not the thing you want to start with. Uh, most people do start with MIG welding or stick welding. Uh, unfortunately, with stick welding, no matter how much time you spend on it, it's probably never going to be beyond sort of a utilitarian type of welding. Uh it's it's tough to have a lot of finesse with a with a stick welder. Uh, a MIG welder you can still do some finesse with it, but again there's there's more limits with it and then and then with a TIG welder you can you have full control over it and it's a, it's sort of working on expert mode and it and you've got a lot of control over what you can do. I, I do recommend learning to weld at some point if if you have the opportunity. Uh probably a MIG welder is the way to go. I know that's probably what i would spend most of my time using just because it is more appropriate for a lot of the stuff that i do but uh, a tig welder is incredibly versatile if you know how to use it
1: well my workspace at the moment is far from finessed it is presently in a a small state of chaos i just moved in a brand new safe so that the year of the nest is going superbly well in the rest of the house but uh, my own workspace is a a bit of a mess at the moment Uh, but as part of the year of the nest i have indeed picked up a a brand new safe and uh, got that all all up and running Uh, it's a significantly better construction quite a bit larger than my my previous one and uh, it's all steel construction which is a a nice change from the lower budget safes that uh, are are available generally speaking at a a consumer level
0: having a good safe is is a nice thing to have in a shop it's challenging to find a good quality safe these days, and they're not cheap. Uh, and then on top of that, moving them around is a nightmare. I've got three safes, I think, right now in my shop, and uh, of varying qualities. Some of them I've been given because they were pretty low quality, and people were getting rid of them. So they're they're handy for you know storing certain things which are not particularly valuable. But the the heavy duty safe that I've got that um, that I put the more valuable work in. Uh, that thing is a beast to try and move around, and it's certainly not something that um, that you take lightly when you do move it. When uh, we we had this conversation a little while back about um, digital versus analog, what did you end up doing with your safe? Did you go with a a digital keypad on yours, or did you go with a a tried and true analog dial on yours?
1: I went old school analog. I just I've had a number of, of situations in the past where the you know this solenoid goes on a, a digital safe. In a, a commercial environment, I, I can see the upsides of going digital because you, you may have a lot of turnover or, or whatnot. you want to change codes frequently or have multiple codes for different people. Uh, so I, I can see the valuing in going digital, but uh, also being well acquainted with uh, working in code. I, I also know some of the, the more fallible points and, and some other <laughs> problem areas that 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 can pop up apart from just components failing or batteries going on you. Uh, but when it's a you know, just yourself or, you know, a handful of, of people you you trust, uh having a an old school combination lock is a, a pretty fail safe way to go and it, you you know, it's gonna just last and last for generations. I mean, you could have a, a safe that's one hundred, one hundred and fifty, two hundred years old, that's analog and it's it's still gonna work. And for those that, that really know what they're doing, you can actually go in and, and change the combinations on that too, if you know, the need should arise. So yeah, I went I went old school. Now, what what's your preference?
0: Well, I've had varying degrees of success with both digital and analog over the years. I will say you get what you pay for when it comes to lock mechanisms on a safe, no matter what you're dealing with, if it's a low end digital or a low end mechanical they are not going to be very reliable in the long term. Uh, Both will cause you problems, regardless of which one it is. Uh, I have never had a solenoid go on the safes I've used, although the thing I have had problems with is batteries. You do need to make sure if you've got a digital safe that you change those batteries out once a year. You're going to get caught out someday with uh, being unable to open your safe with the keypad, you know, just because the, the batteries will die. Although the more you use it, the greater the chances of that happening on you are. So if you're using it a lot, if you're going in there once or twice a day, then it might be worth changing those batteries out more often. Uh, I know the larger safe that I have, that currently has an analog dial on it. And that's something that I'm actually changing out for a high-end digital one. Uh, It's something that I go into on a regular basis and I hate dealing with the, the analog dial that's on it. Even though it's a good quality one, uh, it's just annoying to have to deal with. I I'd much rather, you know, be able to punch in a keypad, and uh, and get into it that way. There are advantages and disadvantages to both, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly from a, in my case, from a convenience point of view, I'd much rather deal with a uh, a digital one just because I'm I am in and out of that safe on a regular basis, trying to trying to get stuff out of there.
1: Yeah, frequency is definitely a, a valid use case for having a, a digital setup. If it's a safe that's going to be open and closed multiple times a day, it does get annoying to have to to dial in the combination on a, a combination lock. So being able to just punch in a couple numbers quickly uh to open the door definitely pays off there. Uh but this isn't something I'm gonna be opening more than than once a day, typically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, buying a good quality safe makes a huge difference. Uh and While a lot of times you you know you feel the weight of the door and it's like oh this feels great it's you know it's nice and sturdy it's actually the sides and the backs of the safe that you have to really watch out for in terms of their construction because a lot of low quality safes are not very well built on the sort of the frame and the the back of it and that's how a lot of people end up getting into them is is through the sides of a safe not through the door itself because often the door itself is is um, over engineered compared to the rest of it so uh, it it Mm -hmm. is certainly worthwhile. Doing some research and um, and getting something good. Uh, in my case, I was very fortunate because the higher end safe that I have actually came out of a a known chain of jewelers here in Ontario. They were getting rid of their old safes. Uh, they were upgrading to larger safes with digital keypads on them. And uh, these came out of their their stores. They're very very sturdy. They're nice and it's nice and solid. Part of my year of organization and part of my welding skills is that I need to actually weld up a new setup in there that, uh, that's appropriate for my needs. So I'm actually going to put in a, a frame, a metal framework in there and put in some drawers that I can, uh, use easily for getting in, getting stuff in and out. Uh, because I tend to put uh, pieces that I'm working on in there or pieces that are finished. So it'd be nice to have a, an easy place to, uh, to sort of get in and out of that and, uh, and make it a little bit more customized for what I need.
1: Yeah. Brand new, uh, the price of a safe seems to be commensurate with the the weight of the safe. <laughs> Whereas uh, when, when you're going used, uh, oftentimes you can get a much heavier safe for significantly less because someone just wants it the hell out of there.
0: Yeah, it's funny how that works. The same thing with uh, with lathes and mills, as I found out over the years, is that like for instance, the bigger the lathe, the cheaper it is, often because people a want to get it out of their shop as fast as possible. And B, because nobody wants them. They're they're huge. They weigh a lot. Nobody can move them. You can't put it on the back of your truck or whatever. Uh, my big lathe that I have, my big South Bend lathe that I have, uh, that's a 16 inch swing on the lathe, that which is you know considerable size for uh, for a metal lathe. Well, obviously, they make bigger metal lathes out there. I'm not saying that this is the biggest lathe out there by any means, but in terms of a machine shop lathe, sort of a you know, something that you would find in a job shop. This is a fairly sizable machine. And I think right now it weighs about 3,500 pounds with all the bits on it. So it's not insignificant in size. And uh, moving that's around, that around is a nightmare if you don't want to tear it down. You know, in my case, I paid nothing for the lathe itself. And in fact, i the, the only money I paid for it was to um, the guy who helped me move it from its last location into this one. Uh, so it's um, often the freight or shipping of the item that's the expensive part. It's not the uh, the item itself because more of the, often than not, people just want to get it out of their shop.
1: Mm-hmm. And interestingly, with this particular safe, the, the shipping was surprisingly cheap uh, compared to what I thought I would be paying. So it was a, an absolute no-brainer mm-hmm. uh, to go with the shipping rather than actually heading over to a store and uh, picking one up.
0: Oh, yeah. If you're buying a new safe, do not do not pick it up yourself get the shipping even if you have to pay a little bit of money to get it um, to get it delivered it is worth every penny because believe me you'll be killing your back by moving it into its final locations oftentimes they'll only put it on sort of the first floor of uh, of your structure but every once in a while you can uh, you know slip the uh, the delivery guys a, a little bit of extra money and they'll uh, put it you know in a basement or whatever it is wherever it is that it happens to be going if it's uh, even if it's not Exactly what they're supposed to be doing originally.
1: Another point in favor of the the digital style locks versus the the old school mechanical ones is that it is feasible to crack a safe when it, when it's got the the physical lock on it. Whereas with the the digital ones, while there are unfortunately oftentimes back doors that the manufacturers have built in, provided no one knows those back doors, there's really not a way to, to easily crack the safe apart from brute forcing it. And there's, at least on a good safe, you're going to have fail safes built in that will prevent any sort of brute force attempts.
0: Yeah, in my case, the the safes that I have have lockouts on them, and so if you miss it, Three or more times, then you're locked out of the safe for, I think it's like 24 hours. So, it's a it's it's unlikely that somebody's going to brute force it, especially with a a large number of digits in the code. Uh, that's that makes a big difference. You know, most analog safes you're looking at three digits for the uh, for the codes, and in my case, I I've got significantly more than that in my oh, my digital ones. So that makes a big difference, and it um, it makes them more secure.
1: Unless you've got a practical jokester around, in which case they can really screw you <laughs> up for a, a day or two.
0: Yeah, that would uh, that would not be good. If I found anybody intentionally locking out my uh, my safe by practicing their uh, cracking techniques, I would not have uh, good things to say to them. So you mentioned uh, tricksters or jokesters trying to crack your safe or, or intentionally locking you out of your safe. Uh, Richard Feynman who was a famous physicist, and he was a bit of a practical joker. At one point in his career, he worked at Los Alamos, uh, working on the um, the nuclear projects that were being uh, developed at Los Alamos. Everybody had these secure filing cabinets in their offices, and they were all being protected by an analog dial. Feynman used to come in, and he would you know, come in and bother people and sit there chatting with them. And, and what people didn't realize was that he was often standing there leaning up against this filing cabinet. He was practicing his safe cracking techniques. He was working on figuring out the combinations of all of these locks on the cabinets in everybody's office. And there was one day where somebody had ended up locking something in a, you know, in a cabinet and it, it was needed and he wasn't available to give the combination And, um, so Feynman ended up, uh, breaking into this guy's safe and everybody was sort of looking at him like, well, how did you do that so quickly? And that's when he had to fess up that he actually knew the combination of everybody's safes and that he was able to get into them. So yeah, be careful with, um, people who are sitting there nonchalantly resting up against your safe. They may actually be trying to figure out what your combination is.
1: I did not know that story about Feynman.
0: Yeah, I think that one came out of um Surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman. If you've never read any of his mm. books, uh, they're they're fabulous. They're they're well worth going back and reading.
1: So how's your watch prototype coming along?
0: Uh things are moving slowly. I haven't had much of a chance to work on new cases. Uh with the I figured that with my organization I need to get that done before or at least some of the shop organization done before I should dive back into this um watch. Since I know if I start working on the watch, I know that I'm going to be deep into that, and I won't want to work on cleaning up the shop. but the thing I have been working on is working on some dial ideas, uh, so I know that a lot of people were particularly impressed with my calligraphy skills and my last dial, my little handwritten dial that I had, and some people are going to be sad to hear that that dial is. No longer on my watch. I've actually started working with a new prototype. And this is one that I've printed and put onto the watch itself. On top of working on an actual printed dial now, and this is just printed on paper, it's not uh, printed with a pad printer like we've talked about in previous episodes just yet. Uh, I've also managed to cut out the window for the moon phase on this watch. So now it's actually showing the moon phase, which is nice. I can uh, keep a track of that and see what it looks like on the wrist. Uh, I know for sure that I definitely want to replace this um, moon phase dial. Uh, I'm not entirely happy with the one that came with the uh, the movement, so I'll be uh, making up a new moon phase dial, something that's a little bit more interesting and a little bit more on brand, I think, than than what the current one is.
1: So did you cut it out by hand, or did you use something like a, a cricket or a silhouette to do that for you?
0: Well, this case, the paper dial is glued onto a sheet of nickel silver. Uh, so I've just cut out that that opening by hand with a uh, jeweler's saw. It, it only takes nice. a minute or two to, to do that. I do actually have a proper metal dial in there. It's just covered up by a piece of uh, paper right now. Uh, but I'm trying to get a sense of proportions and, and I'm trying to decide if the fonts I've chosen are going to look right and um, and things like that. So... Yeah, this is this is sort of a chance for me to experiment with a couple of different designs, and I, I've got sort of four or five variances right now that I'm I'm thinking of, and I need to figure out you know which one sort of works best and which one looks best, uh, at least from a a balance point of view, and then once I'm happy with the balance and layout of it, uh, the next step is to actually cut a couple out of silver. And try engine turning them and whatnot, and see if the engine turning looks good, and see how that affects the balance and the weight of the dial, and uh how much it affects the legibility of it because that's a an important part uh, i I'm not a a fan of highly illegible dials, so I'm trying to make trying to balance that out and make a dial that's going to look good and and be easily read
1: mm-hmm. The mock-ups you sent me have a, an Art Deco flair to them. Is that your own typography on the dial there?
0: The font that I'm using is based on the typeface that Rennie McIntosh used in his designs and his drawings. Uh, he's a Scotsman who was very prevalent in the Art Deco movement. And I, I'm a big fan of the the typeface. I like the look of it and I like the balance of it. It's nice and legible. Uh, it is a sans-serif font, which I think works best for such small type, like what's found on a dial. Uh, so I think it's a, a good combination of an interesting style and um, and something that's legible. Fortunately, I find a lot of watch companies and a lot of watch designers are kind of lazy when it comes to their fonts and their, their font selections. Uh, so it's something I wanted to make sure that I chose something that I was happy with and something that was going to stand out a little bit and be be a little bit unique from what uh, most people are doing.
1: So in the the mock-ups that that I've seen so far, the the numerals are just laid out on the dial along with the the hashes for the other indices. Hmm. Are you planning to have any sort of raised chapter ring at all to to give more of a a break from the guilloche patterns, or or what's the plan there?
0: I haven't decided if I'm going to raise the chapter ring or not, or it it will be defined visually at the very least. Uh, the the chapter ring will have cuts on the inside and outside to distinguish where it starts and stops. Uh, the guilloche is not going to continue on the chapter ring, obviously, because that would be difficult to read. So it's going to have, at the very least, it's going to have a brushed finish to help make the numbers stand out a little bit so that it's going to be legible. Uh, there, there won't be any engine turning straight underneath that. Uh, whether I raise it or not, we'll have to see. It, it depends a little bit on how it looks, how the first, you know, sort of prototypes look and whether I think it needs a little bit more dimensionality to make it stand out a little bit. Uh, it might also be possible that I decide to do the chapter ring in a different metal from the rest of the dial uh, just to help it stand out a little bit even more. Uh, we'll see. That, that's where the the experimentation comes in. and uh, But I need to get something that I'm happy with in terms of layout. As we've mentioned before, when it comes to design of pens, I I can quickly design a pen and have a good sense of the rough proportions of something and know quite quickly whether something is going to work just based on dimensions alone. But this is my first watch dial, so I I don't really know what's going to look right and what's not going to look right. It's also difficult when you're designing something in Illustrator on a 27-inch monitor and you're sitting there looking at it and it's you know, seven or eight times the size of what it's going to be in real life. And it's difficult sometimes to tell what's going to work and what isn't. This is my first attempt at a dial and I have a lot of sort of iterations that I need to make between now and when I'm actually happy with something that I'll put on it Uh, because it it is something that I'm just unfamiliar with in terms of of sizes and balance.
1: I need a reverse loop to look at your your screen. (laughs)
0: I've actually figured out what the what the the zoom factor is that I need to get the the dial just about the right size to to be 1 to 1. Uh so I've been doing that a lot and going back and forth and one of the things that I did initially was that my my font sizes for the numbers were far too small. They were ridiculously tiny and uh and were illegible when it came to uh to being able to read it. So yeah, uh, it at the end of the day, it's it's a, a lot of trial and error right now, but it's, the nice thing is that I, I'm familiar enough with watch dials and how they look on the wrist and, and what's practical in terms of legibility that uh, I think I can make something without too much effort, you know, get at least get 80% of the way there. And then once I'm 80% of the way there, that's where having actual printed versions of them, even if they're just paper, makes a difference because then I can see, all right, no, that's You know, that chapter ring is too small in diameter or it's too large in diameter or the indices need to be larger in size because they don't stand out enough on the dial, those kinds of things. And um, once I've had a chance to play with a couple of printed prototypes, then I can move on to a couple of versions in the metal so I can start to see how the guilloche work interacts with the, uh, the printing and the chapter rings and whatnot.
1: And what are your thoughts right now for where you want to take the, the moon phase display?
0: I think the moon phase dial actually represents an interesting opportunity to create a sort of a, a look and feel for my watch that it isn't necessarily going to be common to other watches. The version that, that it comes with is a fairly simple color uh, moon phase dial. It's a, just sort of a simple, plain, painted moon phase dial. It is uh, a blue background with simple white moons and then a couple of stylized stars on the blue background. And it looks okay. Uh, you know, certainly I wouldn't fault any watchmaker for actually using it on their watch. It certainly looks okay. It's not as if it looks cheap or, or um, you know, out of place for the quality of the movement that it actually is. But in my case, I, I think I want to make it a little bit more custom and uh, and experiment with a few different options we've uh, joked a little bit about the idea of using vanta black on a watch and in fact since we've talked about vanta black on watches there have been a few companies that have actually released watches that have vanta black dials uh which i imagine in person would be incredibly striking i know the photographers who've tried photographing them have complained about just how difficult they are to actually work with because of how black those dials are and i don't know that i'd ever try and do a full black dial like that and I don't have access to Vanta Black. Uh, I'm not a large enough company that they would even return my calls if I wanted to. Uh, but there is an alternative to that. There's a black paint being made by a company by the name of Culture Hustle. And they've been making interesting paints for a number of years. Uh, Stuart Semple, I believe, is the gentleman behind the company. And over the years, he's made a number of really fascinating paints and powders everything from uh, what he calls the pinkest pink which is a outrageously colored pink paint and uh, pigment and he started making a black 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 like an absolute blackest paint he could um, because he wasn't able to use vanta black for artwork there's a famous story of the company that makes Vanta Black actually signing an exclusive deal with a uh, another artist whose name i will not mention because i don't want to give him any more attention than he's already gotten uh, but they have an exclusive deal with him that they're not allowed to produce Vanta Black for any other artists so stuart was miffed by this and since he was already making paints he decided to research making the blackest black he could and they've had a few different versions of this over the years. Black 2.0 was um, was actually something I had planned on ordering and was uh, sort of interesting to me. And they've just recently started a Kickstarter campaign for Black 3.0, which is an updated, more modern version of it. It's a Blacker Black, which apparently ha- is even more matte than the previous one. And... From their claims, will actually absorb up to ninety nine percent of all visible light, which is incredibly impressive.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely from the the video shots I've seen of it does give Vanto Black a, a decent run for the money. And like when you're comparing the two at, at this stage, it's like comparing triple nines to double nines of yeah. accuracy or whatnot. Like it's like you're into differences that are essentially imperceivable to the the human eye. Now, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Stuart Semple has actually gone to Surrey Nanosystems, who is the maker of Vantablack, because they have released a different technique or methodology for achieving these sorts of results not too long ago. And there was also a similar exclusivity agreement with the original Vanta Black that was given to a particular watch brand. I believe it was two years ago hmm, okay. at Basel World, and then uh, this past year, H Moser released a watch with a very black dial on it as well. And there is another watch that I can't remember offhand. And it turned out that the workaround that they had was that this is just a, another iteration from Surrey NanoSystems hmm. that isn't the exact formula or
0: or process yeah. uh,
1: procedure exactly the same process that that is used to apply Vanta Black. If anything, it seems like the all these people who signed these ex- exclusivity agreements with Surrey Nanosystems a few years back are, are the ones getting screwed here <laughs> uh, because uh, they've now got different means to achieve the same effect, more or less, at a, a much lower cost, and uh, they're not being exclusive about it. So I would imagine that uh, that's that's the route that Culture Hustle has gone here. So they're, they're probably sourcing it from the, the, the same company.
0: It sounds like this is a huge leap up from their last black paint, and I'm really curious to see it. So I've actually backed the Kickstarter. We'll put a link to the Kickstarter in the notes. It's uh, good for another 47 days based on on when we're actually recording this, and even after this episode goes out, it'll still be live for probably a good month afterwards. So we'll see what it's like. Um, I I don't get anything out of this other than, um, than as a backer, and it's already been funded, so... Uh, it is going to be produced regardless. If it holds up, and even if it does a reasonable job, I think it might be an interesting look at at doing parts of a dial. You know, in this case, obviously the the night sky is supposed to be what's behind the moon. And particularly when you're looking at a bright moon, the sky seems so much blacker just because of the contrast between the bright moon and the, the sky. So having a black sky would be really, really nice. And then you know, I might see about putting some um, silver or gold wire into the night sky and behind as a bit of a star field and see how that reacts and see if I can make something that looks good. Uh, I don't think that this would hold up well to actual wear. So I think if this was something you needed to handle, it probably wouldn't hold up to, to a lot of wear. But the advantage of it being on a moon phase dial inside of a watch is that it's not going to see a lot of wear and tear. You know, at most, you're going to see maybe a, a watchmaker handling it every every half a dozen years. So ideally, this uh, this will last for quite a while, and it should look pretty good.
1: Mm-hmm. And from what I've been able to ascertain from the Kickstarter, it's just a, a, your basic acrylic paint. Mm-hmm. Well, basic is, is an understatement. It's a, essentially just an acrylic paint that's very, very, very matte black. The fact that it is basically just plastic uh, is what a, acrylic paint is, just plastic in a carrier. I think you should have no issues at all with it it there on the the moon phase dial. But yeah, abs- absolutely. It wouldn't hold up on, say, the the exterior of a case no, or something. Like no, absolutely you, not. You need it somewhere where it's going to be protected.
0: And to be fair, even Vanta Black doesn't hold up well to handling from what I understand. It's uh it is a relatively delicate finish that's on there afterwards. So at the at the end of the day, I think this will be good. I, I've also thought about some ideas for uh, a few other places that I can use it in other other things. So I, I'm kind of curious to see how this turns out. It's uh, it's intriguing to me having such a black material. Uh, obviously, I've played with black metals before with uh, niello, uh, but this brings it to a whole other level. And and niello is nice because it's a metal, so it's polished and it actually shines. Uh, but there's something appealing about um, about a a surface that absorbs all of the light and just doesn't reflect anything back. So it should be an interesting process, and I'm, I'm curious to see how it looks at the end of it.
1: Well, you're in the midst of working on Nielo 2.0, so I expect <laughs> Nielo 3.0 will be the blackest black Nielo.
0: Yeah, it's, it's too bad that it doesn't use a pigment, because otherwise I could uh, try and get a hold of some of their nano pigment that they use.
1: I just need some carbon nanotubes in the mix. Would you consider using this in, say, the numerals on the dial and the indices if you're going to be doing engraved? Or inset numerals
0: yeah that might actually be a good use for it as well uh, it may be something that I can mix up and use as a pigment for pad printing uh, so depending on how I decide to do the the numerals and the indices I haven't decided whether I'm going to try engraving them and fill them or whether I'm going to just pad print them and have it as a you know sort of a raised surface just like a you know you'd see with a, a typical pad printed dial. So I haven't decided which one I'm going to do. Uh, in either case, I may be able to use this and actually convert it into an appropriate medium for both. So we'll see what, to, what it looks like. There's certainly some neat experimentation that needs to happen. This, I don't know when they're planning on trying to have these done for... Well, they say estimated delivery is May of 2019. Even if they're a few months late with print, with making this, and I'd be surprised if they are. They've They've got a lot of experience with making paints at this point so they probably have a pretty good idea of how long it's going to take them to make this um it certainly gives me enough time to experiment with it uh, before this dial goes live and or this watch goes live and i i start selling it to people uh, i'll have a chance to experiment and see how it works best and also have a chance to wear the watch and sort of see what i think about it and how much i like it well
1: if- Black is Black 3.0 delivers on what it claims to. There should be no discernible difference between pad printing the numerals on or infilling engravings. In either case, it should just look like a black void punched right into the dial.
0: Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop. And Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver